0: Saw well, God give the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter twenty, and uh, we note that you know so many people in Israel are gonna break a majority of those. And so what then? What what happens when you know someone breaks a command you shall not steal? Or what happens when someone breaks a command you you shall not murder? You know, what's the just punishment? For the crime that's been committed. And so God gives more commands in, in chapters 21 through 23 to really direct the judges of Israel to know how to justly punish the crimes that people commit against the commandments of God. And we've looked at several of those in chapter 21. Uh, and now we come to chapter 22 and we'll look at several more, but we start with, you know, crimes of theft. And we note that, you know, that there's, there's a different level. You know, when I was a kid, I remember going into a 7 Eleven and stealing a fifty cent candy bar, you know, that that's a lot different than, you know, stealing someone's fifty thousand dollar Mercedes. And so you gotta recognize that with theft, you know, there should be different, you know, punishments for different crimes based on, you know, the value of the thing that you stole. And so, you know, yeah, someone might break the commandment, you shall not steal, but what's the just punishment For someone who does that, and God's going to give guidelines to the judges of Israel so that they have something to base their judgment on. When they have someone standing before them who has committed this crime, they'll know how to judge it, how harsh to judge it, based on what God shares here. And so we're going to start with theft, and we're going to see some other things as well, and just kind of get a better grasp of God's legal system and what God deems as a just Uh, punishment for breaking his laws. And so Exodus chapter 22, starting in verse 1, says this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there there shall be guilt for his bloodshed he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. So if someone's caught stealing, notice there is a requirement for what they're meant to pay. And it's based on the value of what they have taken. And so we're told, you know, if they take an ox, they have to pay back five times as much. And in that culture, an ox was the most valuable animal, uh, it's the biggest, it cost the most to have, and and the greatest deterrent. You take someone's ox, then not only do you have to replenish the ox that you took, you got to give them five. Uh, so you got to five times more than you took. If you took someone's sheep, then you had to give them back four times, four sheep for the every sheep you stole. So if you stole two, you got to give eight. Uh, and so this was the, the consequence. And I think it's important to note that in this time, you know, this was really taking someone's livelihood. You normally would only have one ox if you were a farmer. And the purpose of the ox was to help you plow the land that you were going to farm. You know, that was your livelihood. That's how you took care of your family as you grew that and you ate of that and you sold what you had. And so, you know, if someone stole your ox, you now have no capacity to provide for your family. Your family's going to starve, most likely die. And so this is a significant thing to have that taken from you and sheep in a similar way. You would sell the wool. It would also keep your family warm. Uh, you would also eat the sheep. And so that would feed your family. And so both of these really come back to livelihood for people. And so when you think, man, that's pretty significant of a five times an ox or four times a sheep. Also keep in mind that taking these things was quite damaging, not only to, you know, the, the, the man of the home, but the whole household itself because of what it prevented that man from being able to do. And so since God knew it was such a a big thing and had such big consequences to families, He says, here, I'm going to deter people from doing this. And the deterrent is going to be five times the amount of the most valuable animal, the ox, four times the amount of the second most valuable animal, the sheep. Uh, and hopefully that's going to keep people thinking, like, you know, do I really want to do it? Is it worth it? Because if I'm caught, you know, this is going to be the consequence that's going to be presented to me. Now, if you were caught And you still had the animal. You you went at night, you, you took the sheep, you're on your way home, you were caught with that. Then you had to give back the sheep and double. So you had to give one more sheep as well if you had it caught with you. Now, if you didn't have anything to pay back, so you stole an ox, you're required to give five back. Or you stole an ox and they caught you in the process and you're required to give that ox and another ox back, but you don't have anything. You don't have any oxen, you don't have any sheep, you don't have any money to buy them, so you're broke, and maybe why you were stealing things to begin with. If that was your situation, this is what God would require, that you would then be sold into slavery in order to pay back what you owe. Now we looked at in chapter 21, laws concerning slaves, and we noted that in Israel every person who became a slave did so by choice except for the thief. There were those who were poor and they said, you know what, we can't provide, we're starving, we're going to place ourselves in servitude towards you so that you will give us a room to live in, food to eat, and we, we do this deliberately because we can't take care of ourselves. Well, here is a person, the only person who was forced into slavery was the thief who could not pay back What was due. So if you stole an ox and you had a bunch of oxen and you were just a kleptomaniac or whatever, and you could pay back five oxen, well then that's all that would be required of you, and the debt was paid and it was done, you lost the value of those ox, and you wouldn't be sold into slavery. But if you were in this situation where you could not pay it back, you were placed in the slavery. Well for what purpose? It wasn't like jail. The purpose was every bit of money that you earned serving someone else would go to pay the debt that you owe. So whatever the cost of, let's say, four sheep were, you would be in that uh, slavery until you raise the money to pay for four sheep. And then when you raise that money, those four sheep would go to the person that you stole from and then you'd be released. You would no longer be in slavery because the debt was now paid that you owe to the person that you stole from, from to begin with. Now, notice the punishment isn't sending the thief to jail and leaving the innocent party with nothing, you know, which is our system. You know, let's just send them away, and then the person who was taken from, they get nothing back. They're not benefited in any way, shape, or form because what was stolen from them, they don't get. Because this person doesn't have it. You know, they've taken it. They, you know, they've squandered the money for it. Or, you know, they stole your car and they sold it and they don't have it anymore. So they don't have the capacity to give it back to you. And so now you're left with nothing. But in this system, you're required to pay it back. So in God's legal system, the thief who was stealing instead, uh, he, he would now work. You know, and it's interesting because he's stealing instead of working. But God says, well, now I'm going to cause you to work in order to pay back those you stole from, and so you're going to be working instead of stealing. You were an unproductive member of society as a thief, and now one of the requirements of your restitution is that you're going to become a productive member of society by working until you pay back what you owe. And notice that everybody in God's legal system is benefited. You know, the person who had stuff taken from them, they're definitely benefited because not only do they get back what was theirs, they get four to five times more, at least double is the minimum that they would receive. So they're happy. Hey, I've doubled at least what was taken from me. Society as a whole is benefited because when you place someone in prison... Guess who pays for that? The society. And so now I'm not paying for someone to be in prison. I'm actually having someone who was not a productive member of society working to be a productive member of society. So society is not footing the bill for this guy for however many years they have to pay for him in prison. And guess what? The individual himself, the thief, is actually benefited. He's now getting to actually work, restore back what he took and then some but there would be the reality of, hey, you know what, I, instead of I've done my time, I've actually paid back the person I harmed. Because doing my time doesn't pay back that person anything. I get out, that person still doesn't have their stuff. Yeah, I might have been in prison for a while, but that person hasn't had what they received or needed to get. I've paid that back, and maybe I've learned a valuable lesson. Instead of stealing, I can work. I proved it. It might have taken a couple years, but I have the capacity to work, to earn, and to provide. And so now, hopefully, that's what I'm gonna do as I move forward instead of trying to, you know, continue to steal. But, you know, in our culture today, we kind of have the opposite. You, you, you have, you know, the person who is stolen from, they don't really get anything back if that thief doesn't have anything to give. And so they're not benefited. Society's not benefited because they're paying for this person to be in jail. And typically, statistically speaking, those who are in prison come out worse. We're not really doing a very good job of of helping them be better when they come out. Uh, And so no one's really benefited from the system that we have with thievery and we see that God's legal system is very different and ultimately all who are involved benefit from the way that God has established this and restitution is actually taking place. So I think this is interesting because you see this principle where God values Things that have been taken, actually given back, and then some where, you know, we see in our legal system that's not typically how it works. But you know what? Even in the Christian life, when we harm someone, when we take from someone, when we, we do something that's sinful against someone, we oftentimes kind of follow the, the, the way in which our legal system works where it's like, well, I'm going to get punished, and then that's it. But I don't really do anything to actively, positively restore whatever it may be to the person that I've sinned against. You know, sometimes that might be monetary. It might be actually literally giving them money because I've stolen from them. But maybe it's, you know, coming in and giving that sincere apology or, or there's other things that that I can present. And instead of just, well, I've been caught and I've been shamed and, you know, now I, I've suffered. Well, yeah, maybe you have and you deserve to for that sin. But, but have you done anything positive to actually restore... What you've done as the cause of this circumstance because of your sin. And we see that God values restitution. And so this is something that I think as we see so many different areas in our life where, you know, we commit sin against people. We're all sinners. We all do it. But are we seeking to actually make restitution for the things that we've done? But notice that there's more about What happens with the thief? Because, you know, God wants to cover all his bases. All right, well, normally for a thief to steal something from you, they have to come to your property and take it. You know, your ox, they live on your field, your sheep, they live on your field. And so for a thief to steal one of them, they're going to have to come on your property in order to get it. And now notice what God throws in there because he knew that there would be circumstances at night. you got this thief on your property and you're going to defend your home and defend your family and defend what's yours. Well, what happens if that occurs? And notice what we're told. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. So you're sleeping, the thief breaks into your house. You don't really know his intentions, but, you know, he's there to steal. He might be there to do more to your family. And you strike him. You know, you strike him with your hand. You strike him with a wooden object or whatever, and it kills him. God's saying, you know what? You did that to protect your family, to protect your property. He shouldn't have been there to begin with. That's called self-defense. There shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Now we just looked in chapter 21 about the consequence of violent crimes. And we know a very big difference between murder and killing. This would fall under killing, a legal justification, moral justification for taking someone's life, which is self-defense. We looked at murder, you have no legal or moral justification for killing someone. The consequence for murder was capital punishment. God said you should be killed. Here, notice God says no guilt. Why? Because you haven't murdered him. You killed him. Why? Out of self-defense. You're taking care of your family, your property. God says it's okay to do that. You're a right to do that. But he says you don't have the freedom just to do anything to a thief who comes in your house. Because notice he goes on to say in verse 3, if the sun has risen on him there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. Now understand what this are saying. You come, you meet this guy, you strike him. He's knocked out cold. Maybe you tie him up. He's there all night long. He's alive and well. In the morning, you have the capacity to call police, to get in their time judges or whatever. You could take this guy and they could deal with him. But in your own anger and desire for revenge, when this man is incapacitated and you had the capacity, he's no longer a threat. This is no longer self-defense. This is no longer the protection of your home. You've already done that. You've already taken care of him. But now you decide to kill him anyway. Well, that's moved from self-defense to murder. And now you are guilty of murder. And now you'll suffer the consequences of murder, which is capital punishment. So notice that that's very key. If the sun's risen, there's going to be guilt for his bloodshed. There's no guilt if it's self-defense. He came in, you're, you're defending yourself, but you know, it goes through the night. He's still alive and well, and you decide that you're going to take him out anyway. Well, now things are different, um, and God sees that, and He wants to make that clear: that hey, if someone's on your property, you don't just have the option to kill them. Period. Yes, if you're defending yourself, taking care of things, good. But you know, you incapacitate them, you tie them up. Well, now you have to give them to the authorities. You can't just kill them. Because if you do, that's now murder. So God distinguishes those differences. So notice that God even gives laws that protect thieves. You know, something that we've noted over and over again, God gives so many laws to protect those who have the least value in society. We've seen that, you know, with all these different laws of servants and slaves, where they have pretty much no laws that ever protected them in the culture of that time. God gave plenty of them, you know, because God sees all life as valuable. And it's not like, well, you're wealth, wealthy, so I have a different standard for you. And sorry, you're a slave, so you don't really have any laws that protect you. No, in God's legal system, everyone was protected, and even a thief. Hey, you know what? He can't just be killed for nothing. You know, obviously, he has to be punished for his crime, and he can be killed if he, you you're, think he's a threat. But you've got control over him. You've tied him up. You know what? You can't take his life then. And so God even throws some protection to him. Well, now we're going to see some more laws concerning restitution, but now they're going to be more about lost or damaged property. Verse 5 says this, If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Now, as we saw in the laws concerning violence, that you're responsible for your animals. If your animal were to kill another person's animal, you had to pay for that person's animal. If your animal killed another person, you would be guilty of that person's death if your animal had already shown aggression. You knew that, you know, oxen were were very aggressive and trying to, you know, kill people. If you already knew that and did nothing to protect those people, then God says you're going to be held accountable to that. But here we see as well. Once again, you are responsible for what is yours. There's a personal responsibility and a restitution that comes when what is yours damages or steals from someone else. And so you have an animal. He's hungry. Go graze the field. Eat all the wheat you want. He's like, you know what? I don't like this wheat. I'm going to go to this field over here. That wheat looks better. The grass is greener on the other side. So he goes into your neighbor's field and he starts eating your neighbor's wheat. You can't just be, oh, sorry. What a dumb animal. Let me bring him back over. No, God says, well, now guess what? You're going to have to take from the best of your wheat and pay back what your animal ate because you're responsible for him. You can't just be like, sorry, you know, my animal doesn't know what he's doing. Well, yeah, your animal doesn't, but you should. You should have made sure he didn't come into your neighbor's field. You should have put a fence up. You should have done something to do that. And you didn't. That's fine because now you're going to make restitution. You're going to give your neighbor what is due him and everything's going to be fine. And so we see another way of personal responsibility that God establishes here. So restitution is required for your animal who ate someone else's food, but also in required for your own foolish negligence that causes issues to happen. Notice verse 6, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. And just like with your animal, you're not thinking that he's gonna go. You're like, you got my whole field, can't you just eat out of that? He goes to someone else's field, starts eating. You're responsible. Well, now you wanna barbecue some steaks. You know, you, you're, you're, you light a fire. Maybe you're not paying attention, you're hanging out with your family. Some sparks catch something else on fire. That fire gets big and it burns up your neighbor's stacks of wheat. Well, guess who's responsible? Well, the fire did it, not me. Well, you're the one who started it and didn't pay attention to it. And it went out of control on your watch. So what does that make you? Personally responsible. So there's restitution. You're going to have to pay your neighbor for what was burned. And once again, you know, we kind of live in a society. We want to blame everybody else. Well, it was the fire's fault. And well, the fire department didn't get there fast enough. They should have been there. Well, at the end of the day, who started it? You. Who was responsible for making sure it didn't spread? You. Who failed in that? You. So guess what? You have to pay back what was damaged. So God's once again bringing back this personal responsibility for loss or damage, even if it's an accident. You know, probably even in this situation, most people weren't probably pyros that, you know, wanted to light everything on fire. It's just an accident, but still, you're the cause of that accident, and therefore, you should pay for it. F.B. Meyer wrote this. We wrong another not only by what we do or permit to be done, but in what we carelessly fail to do. Yeah, and this is one of those things which I think in our culture and in the Christian world, we kind of leave out the end. Yeah, we understand we wrong when, you know, by what we do or permit to be done. But what about when we're just careless or carelessly fail to do something we should? You know, we want to give ourselves a pass on that. Yeah, I think the consequence shouldn't be as much when we're careless, but there is a consequence. You know, there is restitution that should happen. Yeah, I mean, if you're a Christian, you're in a parking lot, you back in... To someone else's car, you know, they're in Walmart. They don't know it's, you know, it happened. You've left a dent and you're like, well, I'm going to get out of here as quick as possible. No, you've caused that. It might've been an accident. Maybe you thought you were farther from the car than you were, but you need to deal with that. You need to write a note. You need to let them know your insurance details. You need to pay for doing that because you're the one who caused the issue and it's your personal responsibility to take care of that. Verse seven and eight, God shares some more ways that we are personally responsible Excuse me. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it's stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. So if someone gave you something to keep watch over, you're responsible. Hey, you know what? Can you watch over my ox? Can you watch over my sheep? You know, I'm going on vacation. Can you watch my car, my house? You know, whatever. Someone's giving you the responsibility and you've taken on that responsibility. Yes, I will watch what is yours. Well, now that stuff is stolen out of your house. They find the thief. Well, the thief is going to give the usual punishment. He's found with the stuff, so he's going to pay double. But if the stuff went missing and no thief was found, then you would be brought before the judges to see if you were the one who took that stuff. Oh, you had the responsibility. It's now gone. We don't know where it went. So now you're going to stand before as you know, responsible, like, hey, under my watch, it's gone. Was I the guilty party? And once again, this law is to make sure you took personal responsibility for anything in your possession, even if it's not yours. Huh, it's not my car. You know, sorry, you know, or it's not my sheep. It's not my oxen. You know, I'm not going to protect it and watch over it like I would my own. Well, if you've taken responsibility over it and you told your neighbor that you would, well, now you're just as responsible as you should be for what is actually yours. You know, the things we should be most responsible and good stewards over is what God gives to us. Yeah, I think it's just a great principle to remember because really, biblically speaking, all that we have, we're just stewards of. You know, even our life, we're told God bought us at a price. We're no longer ours, we're his. You know, we live life like everything's ours. You know, I work hard all day, all this money's mine. God's like, actually, no, I've given you the capacity to work. All this is really mine. You're the steward, I'm the master. And I want you to spend this wisely with the recognition that it really belongs to me, not you. I want you to live your life wisely with the recognition it belongs to me, not really you. I think too often as Christians, we miss it, we, especially here in America. No, it's, it's mine. You know, we have this very much, I worked hard, it's mine, I'll do as i please. God, you know, it's not yours. I'm the master of my life. I'll do as I want. And this is just a good principle to remind us of, no, I'm just a steward. And as a steward, I should be responsible for what is given into my possession to take care of. And to treat it as it's mine, but recognizing it's someone else's and I need to... Do with it what they want me to do with it. Well, next God gives a law concerning making accusations against others about theft. Verse 9. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or of any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, And whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Now this is a very interesting thing that God establishes here. Hey, you know what? If you accuse someone of taking anything, it can be as big as an ox or as little as a t-shirt, all right? Whether it's clothes or whether it's animals, both of you are going to come before the judges because you're making an accusation that this person has taken this thing from me. But the thing I want you to note here is that both parties shall come before the judges and whomever the judges condemn She'll pay double to his neighbor. You think, well, there's only one person who should be condemned or not condemned, the person who's been accused, right? Well, no. Because guess what? There could be another person who's in the wrong. Someone who's falsely accusing you of doing something you didn't do. So if I'm falsely accusing you of taking my ox and you didn't take my ox and we go before the judges and the judges say, no, actually, that's not the case. Guess who gets to pay double? Me. The one who's made the false accusation, you took my ox. Actually, we find that he didn't take your ox, and now you're going to pay him two ox because that's what he would have to pay you, and you made a false accusation against him. If the judges say, yes, he actually did take your ox, he's going to pay you two oxen for stealing from you. But notice that this is one of those things, and we're going to see more of this as we go on, a prevention against false accusation, which I wish we had something like this in our legal system today because you know what? There's really nothing that is preventing people from making false accusations. You know, growing up, I used to watch the show Judge Judy. I don't know if any of you have seen it. She's kind of really rough, and, and I liked watching how she would deal with people. But almost every single episode, you would see in, like, however long it was, at least one person made a false accusation. You know, oh, they owe me a $1,000 for rent or whatever the accusation would be. And she would find that she looks at things that that's just a false accusation. But the only thing that would happen to the person making the false accusation is they wouldn't get what they wanted to have awarded to them. They want a thousand dollars for rent. They want that person to give it to them and Judge Judy would say, well, no, that's in her colorful way. you know that's not going to happen. They're not going to give you anything next case. But if this was established in our legal system, guess what? It wouldn't just be you're not going to get the thousand dollars that you falsely accuse this person that owes you. you're gonna pay them two thousand dollars. Case closed. That would change things. Now I don't really want to stand up there with some false accusation knowing if I'm found out, I'm paying double to the person that I'm trying to get to pay me. And if we had more of that in our culture, we would definitely see much less false accusations taking place than we do now. Next, God gives some laws concerning restitution. When something suspicious happens, but there's no witnesses to confirm or deny what truly did happen, verse 10. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's good, and the owner of it shall accept that, and she, he shall not make it and he shall not make it good. But if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good what was torn. So if you gave your animal to someone else to to keep on your behalf and something suspicious takes place, the animal dies, uh, the animals hurt, the animals driven away, all those things that happen And there's no one who saw it happen. There's no witnesses to say, well, yeah, this is what took place or whatever. Now there's this suspicious, sorry, behavior. And should the testimony of the person accused, which is the person that you gave responsibility for your animal, be accepted in such cases? Well, this is what God says. This person needs to come and make an oath before me. Not just, oh, I swear I didn't do it. Something more significant. You're going to swear before the Lord. And we're going to see later on that those who did that and were not telling the truth, they're facing God's consequences from himself, which was quite huge. And so you're going to swear before me that you didn't do this. Since no one else saw it, there's no proof, there's no evidence. Well, what's going to happen? Sorry, you who gave your animal to this person, you're going to have to trust that this oath is true. You're going to have to trust that what they're swearing before the Lord is accurate and you're just going to have to leave it at that. Nothing else is going to be given. They're not going to have to pay you back because they're claiming that they are innocent of doing anything wrong. Now, if there was some kind of evidence that this person was lying, and that'd be a different situation. That could be proven. And then all the other things that God says about thievery would come into place here. But really, this principle is the foundation of our idea that man is innocent until proven guilty. In this case, his oath, is proof. You know what? I'm claiming innocence, and unless there's proof of my guilt, I'm not paying back anything, you know, just because you want me to. Uh, and this is, you know, what we have in our culture, which I think is a, is a good thing. Innocence until proven guilty, which seems that people are trying to take that away from us, but at least now we have it. Now, if a beast tore that animal to pieces, you got evidence right there. Sorry, I didn't do anything wrong. I can't prevent a beast from getting into the field and wiping out the animal. So I'm going to take the pieces of this animal and I'm going to present it as evidence to prove it wasn't my fault. But if the animal stolen, you are responsible because you're responsible to watch out and protect and it was in your care. And so if it was taken, then you had to make restitution. Well, next we see restitution of principles applied to borrowing and lending verses 14 and 15. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If if it was hired, it came for its hire. So if you borrowed an animal from a neighbor and it's injured or died, then you're required to pay back the person that you borrowed it from if they weren't there. So, okay, I need your, you know, your ox. I'm going to use it to plow my field. You know, it's going to take me a day, you know, and I'll give it back to you when it's done. And the ox dies while it's in your care. Guess what? You're going to have to give an ox back to the person you borrowed it from. But let's say the owner's with you and something happens to the ox. It breaks its legs. something gets hurt. Well, guess what? You're not responsible because the responsibility is with the owner and he's still with the oxen. So if the owner's with the oxen, it's always his, he's always responsible. If something happens, it's on his watch, then he can deal with it. But if it's on your watch and the owner's not there, then you now become the responsible party and you have to bring restitution. So God's saying, if it was just you, the owner's not there, you better provide whatever is needed to restore what happened to that animal. And if the owner was there, then he can deal with it because he was there with you and therefore he is responsible for his own stuff. Now, most of these specific examples we note are, are to do with animals because of the culture of the day. But, you know, the same principle would be great for our own culture and, you know, something that we should take personal responsibility for our actions when it comes to stuff that we should borrow. that's lost. It's stolen. You know, too many Christians are like, sorry. Yeah, you know, I was, you know, living in Georgia before here and I lent a guy one of my drills and he was up on a ladder And it was an accident. He kicked the drill off and landed. It broke, you know, and, you know, at first he's like, hey, you sorry, man. I was like, yeah, that's nice. You're going to get me a new drill. Uh, And at first it was like, well, it was an accident. You know, he did end up buying me a drill, but it's like, well, yeah, but I gave it to you. You broke it. And now, you know, you're responsible to get my drill back to me in one piece. I'm not responsible for your accident. You should be responsible for getting it. And that's what we see here. But oftentimes it's like, sorry, I didn't try. Here's the, oh, there's more of the drill. There you go. You know, go get yourself a new one. Uh, now, if I was there with him and we were working together and I have my drill and I say, here, put it up there on the ladder. He kicks it, knocks it over. Sorry, I'm using it. He's using it. I'm there with him. My drill gets broken. Then I'm going to have to deal with it. So you borrow someone's tool, you borrow their lawnmower, you break it, whatever. You know, be responsible, fix it, replace it. Um, the next law is quite interesting. It's a law that kind of prevents or at least tries to be a remedy for premarital sex. Verse 16 and 17. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So in that society, I've noted this before as we saw some other laws, if you wanted to marry a girl, all marriages were prearranged by parents. You had to pay a dowry. You had to pay a sum of money or maybe it would be camels or animals, something that was valuable. And you had to give it to the father as a dowry in order to receive the daughter. And the father would hold that money. So if you were to die or anything were to happen in the relationship that money would ultimately be for his daughter to take care of her needs because in that culture, if you were widowed, you were pretty helpless. Uh, And so you had no money, and so that dowry was going to be saved for you. So that was very important. But now notice here what we see. uh, If a man were to have sex with a virgin girl, she's not married, well, what happens? He's caught in this. He has to now pay the dowry. He has to pay the price that would cost for this girl. All right. So there's one instance. You know what? You've had sex with her before marriage. You're now going to pay the dowry and you were going to marry her. You're going to do what you should have done. But what if dad says, I'm not letting my daughter marry you. I mean, look at kind of man you are sleeping with my daughter before you're married to her. You have, you're never getting my daughter. Well, the dad was at liberty to do that because it was the parents who arranged the marriages. But guess what? This guy doesn't get off the hook that easy. Okay. Sorry. I'm I'm gone. No, no, no. You're still going to pay the dowry and you're not going to get the woman. But either way, he's paying the dowry. He's going to pay the dowry and maybe get a wife, or he's going to pay the dowry and dad says no, but this is the consequence for this man having premarital sex with this girl. Adam Clark wrote this. This was an exceedingly wise and humane law and must have operated powerfully against seduction and fornication because the person who might feel inclined to take advantage of a young woman knew that he must marry her and give her a dowry. So this law would have been a pretty big deterrent to premarital sex. I mean, imagine if today we had a law in the books like this, you know, that, hey, you get caught doing this. There's this lump sum of money that, that you're going to have to pay. And most likely you're going to have to marry this girl because sadly, a lot of guys aren't looking to have a marriage relationship. They're just looking to have sex. Uh, and this would just kind of change things. But, you know, that's the sad reality of our culture and the way that they view sex, which is very different than the way in which God had intended it. He says, here, I made it, it's a wonderful thing, but I've only made it for a specific uh, guideline between a man and a woman who are married. That's where you can engage in this, and it's great, and it's wonderful, but anything outside of that is against what God's plan was. And so he establishes a law to try to keep people from having sex until they're married. Now, back in chapter 21, we looked at some violent crimes and the capital punishment that were associated with that. And and some of them wouldn't surprise us, like murder. You know, we would expect that. But here we have three more crimes that God says are going to be punishable by death. And they don't fit under the violent category, but they do fit under the category that God says it's horrible enough that I want this person's life to be taken from them. Verses 18 through 20. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death, and he who sacrifices to any god except the Lord only shall utterly be shall be utterly destroyed. So we have three different reasons here for capital punishment beyond the violence that we saw early on in chapter twenty one. The first one here is if someone is practicing sorcery. Sorcery ultimately connected with witchcraft, connected to you know you know just demonic activity, really the worship of Satan, even biblically, you know, also connected with a lot of drug abuse and and things of this nature that kind of lead to demonic worship. The sorcery, God says, is so problematic. And we'll look through nation of Israel's history and you see those who bought into this and led people from worshiping the true God to ultimately worshiping, you know, Satan. You know, God says, rid them of your culture. This is so severe, this is so horrible. This individual, what they're doing to themselves and the influence they're going to have on the culture around them is so significant, kind of like someone who murders people. I want their life to be taken from them. I do not want them a part of the nation of Israel. So this was something very extreme. We see that as extreme in God's eyes because of the punishment that God establishes for it. Another one that God says is guilty of death is if someone is having sex with animals. Then you should put them to death. Bestiality shows how far a depraved culture goes sexually when they deny God's standard for sex. We just noted, you know, what God established for, you know, a man who sleeps with a woman before marriage. But notice that, you know, often, you know, we see in our culture, which is very much a culture of if it feels good, just do it. That's kind of how our culture views sex. They definitely don't define it the way that God does. They don't practice it the way that God gives in his guidelines. And to say, hey, if it feels good, just go for it. It doesn't matter. And so that often starts with a man and a woman sleeping with one another, maybe before marriage or outside of marriage. It goes into adultery, and it just keeps getting worse. Then the perversion grows. you got man and man, woman and woman. But really, it goes even worse than that, where it gets so perverted that people are starting to have sex with animals. And it just shows kind of the digression that happens. And we'll also note that adultery was punishable by death. So is bestiality. And so God is saying, this is something that I do not want within the nation of Israel. It has huge consequences. And this is obviously getting to a very depraved state. Uh, And so God says, those who participate in this will be killed. If someone was found guilty of sacrificing and worshiping false gods they be put to death. You shall have no other gods before me. We started that with the Ten Commandments. Well, God's saying, if you do, if you're worshiping another god, a false god, well, the punishment is death. It's interesting that throughout the nation of Israel, so much of their time, they're worshiping false gods. And actually, they rarely ever put this into practice probably because the majority of them are guilty of it and they don't want to wipe on each other out. But rarely do you see them actually implementing. So not only are they breaking God's law in worshiping false gods, they're breaking the judgment that God says should be dust out, which is death. Uh, we only really see that very few times. We see that with Elijah when the prophets of Baal and they have this whole battle and God brings fire down from heaven. Well, what happens? Elijah kills them all. Uh, So there's truly the consequence that we see here, but rarely in Israel's history actually did they take this consequence on themselves, which is death. But this is something that God establishes because he realizes the worship of other gods, not only is it so problematic for that person, but the influence that they shall have on others will be so destructive. And we see through nation of Israel's history, it just took one or two, especially significant influential people that decided, you know what, let's worship Baal, let's worship this. And then all of a sudden the whole nation is following in suit and they're following, falling away from the worship of God. And so God took that very serious and capital punishment was connected to that. Well, now we have some laws concerning people who would have been, you know, strangers, weak, those who would have been poor, vulnerable. Uh, And as we see, God, God looks after those individuals. You know, his system of laws want to protect them. And we start here in verse 21 with laws concerning strangers. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know, a good measure of our moral character is how we treat strangers. Because, you know, even Jesus says, oh, you love those who love you. Who cares? Even sinners do that. I mean, all of us have a, have a tendency to love family, to love those who love us back, to love friends. That's not that hard. What's really hard is to love the stranger, to love the person who's different, to love the person that you don't really know well. How do you treat them? And unfortunately, even within the church world, we often struggle with that. Even when people are new and they come into church and you have those who've been there for a while and they're in their little group or clique and they kind of just talk with one another and unfortunately just completely ignore... The new person, the stranger, the love that they show to one another that they've been around for a year is very different than the person that just showed up. And oftentimes people leave and they don't come back. I, mean, I didn't feel any love. I didn't feel any, you know, somebody uh, receiving me. And so we have to be aware of the fact that, hey, we should take care and treat strangers in a loving way. But notice that God reminds the nation of Israel of something that, you know, this should be easy for you guys to understand the importance of. Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. (laughs) You should know how badly strangers can be treated. Because in Egypt, you guys were made slaves. That's how bad it was for you. You were strangers. They ostracized you. They made you slaves. They treated you horribly. I had to bring 10 plagues to get you out of there. Remember how bad it was for you. And so as you have strangers come into your community, come into your midst, remember how you were treated and don't be like that. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be treating people horribly. Treat them with love. Treat them with respect. Treat them with dignity. Next, we see laws concerning the weak and the vulnerable. Verse twenty-two and through twenty-four: You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out to, at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. You know, something that you see throughout Scripture, God takes those who are in the weakest form in that society, which are widows, they don't have a husband to provide, to protect, and fatherless, they don't have a dad to do the same you know they were destitute oftentimes and they didn't have someone to provide for them you know people would take advantage of them because there was no protector of the home and so this was the most vulnerable group and throughout scripture you see that God takes that very seriously of he's like I'm going to be the one to protect this group and I'm going to put in laws that tell you you better not take advantage of these people because if you do You're not just going to be met with the wrath of the government, the wrath of the legal system. No, it's going to go beyond that. You're going to be met with the wrath of Almighty God. And notice what he says here, because all these other ones, it's like, here is for the judges. I want the judges to put you to death. I want the judges to make you pay five times what you stole. I want the judges to do whatever. But in this instance, he says, you know what? You mistreat widows. You mistreat the fatherless kids. (laughs) It's not the judges you're going to have to worry about it's going to be me. Notice what he says here. I will surely hear their cry when they cry out to me for what you've done against them. And my wrath will become hot. And what might I do to you? (laughs) Kill you with the sword. And guess what? That's going to make your wife a widow. What it's going to make your kids fatherless. You're mistreating the widows and the fatherless. The greatest consequence I could give to you would be to take your life so that your family is now in the situation that this family's in and they would be widowed and fatherless. And God says, my wrath is going to become hot. And we just see from the response and from the consequences that God gives what he sees as something that is very important and also something that is horrible. He values greatly the widows and the orphans. And those who would take advantage of that His wrath is hot towards them. And so this is one of those areas, you know, James says, pure and undefiled religion is to take care of widows and orphans in their trouble. As a church, we should look at this group and say, you know what? We want to make a big effort to be those who are blessing, taking care of, doing whatever we can to help, never in the situation where we're taking advantage and hurting and abusing. Because when we get to this side doing that, We're not just facing the laws of God. We're facing God himself who says, I will repay you if you're going to do that to those who are the weakest and vulnerable. And once again, God is establishing these things to prevent. And he knows this is the one group where people are going to be like, ah, who's going to get back at me? You don't have a father. You don't have a husband. Who's going to ever do anything if I come and abuse you? If I come and take, no one's going to touch me. No one's going to do anything. How is anyone even going to know? God says, oh, I'll know and I'll take care of you myself. So don't do it. Don't even think about it. Next, we have laws concerning those who are poor, another very vulnerable group. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? It will be that when he cries to me, I will hear and be, for I am gracious. So God is saying, you know what, when it comes to lending money, there's a difference between lending money to someone who is middle class or wealthy versus someone who's poor. There's nothing wrong with receiving interest for money. God's not saying you you can't do that, but he's saying when it comes to poor people, there is. So if someone, you know, they, they need to borrow some money and you're going to give that and you are going to say, well, you know, you can do that. I'll give you this large sum and, you know, I'll charge you interest for buying a house or whatever we do. God's not saying, oh, no, that's, that's not biblical. He's saying if there's a poor person, the reason that they're asking for money is because they're trying to survive. They, they need something to, to, to just make it. Don't make money off of them. You should be there to help them. You should be there to try to take care of them. You know, they're just making it. And they're asking for your help. And all you want to require is for them to pay you back what they owe, as in just what you gave to them. You're not going to be like, yeah, and 10% more. No, do not get interest for them. Take care of them. They're poor. They're vulnerable. Don't do that to them. But also notice that God says, hey, you know what? Don't take their garment as a pledge. This was a common thing back then. Hey, I'm going to pay this back. Here is my garment. You could hold on to it. It's my pledge to prove that I'm going to fulfill and pay this back. And you would hold on to it until the money was paid back. God said, yeah, that's fine with those who are you know, middle class, wealthy. They got plenty of garments. This poor person, that's all they got. You're going to take that from them. They're going to go home and they're going to be cold all night long. That's what they have to keep them warm. That's all they have. They only have that one garment. So, you know, they can give it to you and they say, this is my pledge. But before the sun goes down, you give it right back to them. Here, take this. Make sure you're warm tonight. Why? I'm not taking advantage of you as a poor person. I realize this is all you got. I don't need to hold on to this. I'm doing this. I want to help you. You know, pay me back when you can. Pay me back what I owe you. But I'm not going to charge you interest and I'm not going to keep your garments. All this that God is establishing is, hey, I want to take care of the poor. Because once again, they're going to be taken advantage of. Why? The wealthy usually have the power. The wealthy have the influence. The poor don't. And so it's easy for those who have to take advantage of those who have not. And God's saying, not in my society, not the way that I run things. I want to make sure we do not take advantage of those who are less fortunate. They're going to cry out to me and I'm going to hear for I'm gracious. He just said about the widows and the fatherless, they're going to cry out to me. I'm going to hear and I'm going to deal with you. But here he's he's bringing out this reality, you know, I'm gracious to poor people. And I think that's such a good principle for us as believers. Hey, I want to be like Jesus. Well, good. He's gracious to poor people. He's giving. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave what was most valuable, his only son. And I think too often, you know, when it comes to being generous, to being giving, especially to the poor, we're often not where we should be as believers. And we should recognize, hey, this is the heart of God. He wants to take care of these people. He wants to bless these people. And I should be that way as well. I should be one who's willing to give. I should be one who's willing to help, especially to take care of those who are struggling to make it. Well, this chapter ends with God giving some laws regarding holiness and separation unto him. Verse 28 through 31 says this, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people, You shall not delay to offer the first of your pipe ripe produce uh, and your uh, juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me, and you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So here we see with all these things that God is establishing, he's kind of establishing this holiness, this reality of I want you to be separate unto me. I want you to live in a way different than me. We're going to see so many of the different laws that we see given to the nation of Israel, the length of their beard, the tassels, all these things. It's like, well, why do they do that? To separate themselves from the rest of the world. That it'd be so clear that this is God's unique people and God has established things so they would be seen as separate from others. But here this is more of a moral separation. You shall not revile your God nor cause a ruler or curse a ruler of your people. You know, one of the biggest areas where we show holiness in our life is through what we say, especially about God. So we should never be reviling him. but We also shouldn't be cursing the rulers that he's placed over us in the context, most likely speaking of the judges that are over them, that are going to be you know, following through with all the you know punishments that come. And I'm sure there'll be people like, they, they killed my brother for murder and they're cursing these people. God say, no, I put these people over you. You don't curse them. You don't revile me. In holiness, what we speak is very important. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. Another way that we are in this holy state of separation to God, respecting God, is to give him the first of our stuff. First of our produce, what we grow as farmers. First of our juice, our firstborn son, the first of our born cattle. God's saying, I I want the first, the best from you. We'll go on and we'll see like how you were to buy back your son from God, what you were to do with the firstborn. But all of this just right now, just understand God doesn't want our leftovers. And I think sadly, as Christians too often, it's like, all right, you know, when it comes to money, you know, I'll spend all the money I can on myself. And if there's any leftover, oh, here's 20 bucks for you, God, or here's this for you. And God said, no, no, no. The first thing you should do when you get paid is set aside for me. Give me the best. In your life, your time, your abilities, your talents, God's saying, no, no, don't just like, well, you know what, Lord, I'm going to live my day and maybe at the very end of it, before I go to bed, I might give you a few minutes if you're lucky. I might give you the leftovers when I'm tired and falling asleep. I, I might even pray a prayer to you. God's saying, no, I don't want that kind of time. I want your best. I want you when you're alert. I want you when you're ready to engage in the word and, and, and speak to me. So God doesn't want leftovers and that holiness and being set apart to him that we truly would give him our best. And that is what he's asking of the nation of Israel. You shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn to beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart to me. In this phrase, you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field, is this command is really act differently than the animals who freely scavenge uh, dead carcasses. I want you to be different than them. Don't they be like animals. Be holy men. Be set apart to me. Be different than the culture around you. Be different than the animal kingdom. Be men who are holy, set apart. That's the kind of people I want. You know, and this really kind of sums up so much of the laws that God is establishing because that's his goal. I want to bring you to this place of holiness, this place of being set apart, and I'm dealing with all those who choose not to be that way in the way that I'm going to do it. Adam Clark wrote this. In the conclusion of this chapter, we see the grand reason of all the ordinances of laws which it contains. No command was issued merely from the sovereignty of God. He gave them to the people as restraints on disorderly passions and incentives to holiness, and hence he says, ye shall be holy men unto me. That's kind of where it's all leading. I want you guys to be holy. I want you to be set apart to me. And all these laws are to prevent and to protect. Prevent the behavior that I say do not do and to protect you from those who would do that. Also to protect yourself. <laughs> when there's consequences, it's easier to resist those things. When you know what's coming, yeah, I really want to take that ox, but I'm going to have to pay five back. I'm not going to do it. If I didn't have to pay anything back, that ox would probably come to my house. But there's the consequences that also protect me from myself and my sin and my desires. Oh, I want to sleep with this girl, but you know what? I know if I do, I'm paying dad dowry and I might not get her anyway. There's consequences that come that prevent behavior because God ultimately wants holiness. And he realizes, hey, These things are part of helping you get to the place where you're separated and living for me the way that I want. And when you don't live the way that I want, there is discipline in the role of, you know, there are consequences. There are things that are going to happen, which hopefully will change your behavior in the future. And so we see God's legal system even more. We see how he protects the innocent. We see how he protects the poor, the weak, the widow, the fatherless, even the thief. You know, because everybody in God's legal system has value. And that's why we see the laws concerning abuse of people, taking life of people. It's capital punishment because God says, you know what, they're created in my image. They have huge value to me. And so anyone who abuses these people, there's going to be a huge price to be paid because I value them so greatly. And I don't care if they have money or not. I don't care if they have a husband or not. I don't care if they have a father or not. They are valuable to me. I'm going to protect them in my system Everybody is going to be taken care of. And how wonderful that is, because we look at our system and we see, man, there's totally different playing fields for the wealthy and for the poor. You know, if you're wealthy, you can do lots of things and nothing's going to happen to you. You're poor. You know, you're gone. Nothing you're going to do about it. You're going to get a public defender is not going to do much for you. And you're, you're going to be sent to prison for however many years. You know, we live in a system where not everyone's treated equally. But in God's system, they were. And it just shows the heart of God in that, And hopefully that's an encouragement to us. Any thoughts on this chapter? I know it covers a lot of different laws or before we've kind of looked at specific things like violence. This one covered a whole gamut of things, but any thoughts of what we looked at tonight?